0: Happy birthday. The season of Eastertide has come to a close and the season of Pentecost has arrived. It's the birthday of the church. It's when God's spirit was poured out um, as Jesus promised that it would be. And when that happened, the very things that Jesus talked about in the text this morning, began to unfold before the very eyes of the apostles, the ones who once ran scared, the ones that Jesus had said prior to even reading this text to Peter, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. It's when the Spirit was poured out as Jesus promised that it would be that it gave birth to the church. And so we wear red on Pentecost to be reminded of the flames that sat atop the heads of those gathered that day. Where are we in our story? We're hearing the I Am statements of Jesus. And this morning, we're in um, John chapter 14, Um, It's a very familiar I am of Jesus, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, No one comes to the Father but by me. There's a lot more that Jesus meant for us to hear, even in this section of Scripture. So I invite you to turn there with me now, if you would, to John chapter 14. We'll read verses 1 through 14, and let's stand together as we hear the Word of God read. Jesus is just foretold. Peter's denial and begins in verse one by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is God's word, it's absolutely true, and it's given to us. So, Father, where the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord. So, I gave you a little bit about where we are in the story. In John chapter 13, Jesus is gathered with his disciples... And they're in the upper room. And those of you that have come to a Maundy Thursday service before, what does Maundy mean? Maundy means mandate. Mandate was the new mandate or the new command that Jesus has given his disciples. They are to love one another just as they have been loved by him. So in John chapter 13, the disciples go with Jesus to the upper room. And it's there that Jesus takes off his outer tunic and begins to wash their feet, taking on the role of a menial servant. Over the course of the supper that they share together, Jesus is beginning to give them final teaching before he goes uh, to face the, uh, the trial and crucifixion that awaited him in Jerusalem. And right before the passage that we read this morning, um, he has foretold Peter's denial back in verses 36 through 38 of chapter 13. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said to him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Bless his heart. (laughs) Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. And then he goes into where we are in in verse 1. And he presents in the, in the, in the uh, teaching that follows in verses, uh, or in chapters 14, 15, and 16, this, uh, this beautiful picture of what will happen between the resurrection and Pentecost. Jesus is telling his disciples that you are going to be failed by your colleagues and even yourself. Jesus is telling us that you are gonna be failed in some way by someone. And it is going to be troubling, but don't let it trouble you too bad. You're gonna find it disheartening, but there is one who will not fail you. Remember God and remember me that we are trustworthy. Let not your hearts be troubled, he says in verse 1. Believe in God, believe also in me. Remember what we talked about last week with the resurrection of Lazarus as Martha has run to Jesus and, and, and she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the resurrection on that last day. And Jesus said, no, 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 it's not the last day resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. Do you believe this, Martha? And these wonderful things that he was saying to her, too wonderful even to comprehend, her response was a very honest response. She said, I don't know that I believe these things, but I believe you. And what is Jesus saying now to comfort his disciples? I know that what I'm about to say, you don't get. I know that what I have just said, you don't get. But let not your hearts be troubled. Believe into God. Believe also into me. When we think about what this life entails, we don't necessarily think about this passage but it has a lot to say. But it's not just way and truth and life in an abstract way or an evangelism way. It's no less than those things, right? This is a very evangelistic passage. It declares things about God. It declares things about Jesus. But it's also an incredibly, uh, it's an incredibly lofty passage. It's an incredibly comforting passage. So I want to give you three points this morning um, Because we're gonna hear Jesus talk about being the way to the Father. That'll be the first point. And Jesus being the personal truth of the Father. That's the second point. And Jesus giving miraculous life from the Father. That's the third point. When I was a young driver, I had a bad habit. I had a lot of bad habits. I still have some bad habits. I would look through the windshield too close to the front of the hood of the car. And what it caused was for me to overcorrect one way or another. My dad one time asked me if I was actually trying to give the person in the lane next to me uh, a medical incident. (laughs) He had a way with words. It was when I brought my eyes up and looked down the horizon, looked far out in front of the car that the erratic motion stopped. And this is what we see here, that the, uh, Jesus says that the antidote to a troubled heart is to set our eyes not in front of us, but beyond us, to the Father and to the Son. This is what stops the erratic motion in our lives. This is what stops the overcorrecting and overcompensating to one way or another. Take, take your eyes up and put them on the horizon. This is a this is a text that is offering us a new horizon, a new vantage point, a new focal point to look at. Because as we hear and are reminded each and every week about the gospel, both in its accomplishments and its attributes, we are reminded to take our eyes off of ourselves and put them back onto Jesus. We will fail, but Jesus won't. Jesus continues to unfold promises, and I have to tell you, That both to the ears of the apostles and to our ears as well, there should seem to be almost a too great for words type of impact of what Jesus is saying. Listen to what he says in verses 2 and 3. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So what we're hearing here is that the Father has glorious real estate. And we're going on a journey to that place. Jesus says that when he departs, he's going to go personally and make our reservation to our glorious new home, promises to provide our transportation there, and even more stunning than that, that he himself would be our transportation to this place. Now think about this. This is not just some of this, oh, that's, that's sweet, that's nice, ooh, ah. This is the new horizon point. This is the hope that we have set our hearts on. This is the pilgrimage that we are on. We are strangers and aliens in a land that is not our home. And our faithful Savior Jesus has gone personally to reserve the spot for us in the place that is our home. And then he's coming back to get us and bring us there so that we could be with him. Where will this place be when Jesus comes to take us there? He says it in verse 3. That where I am, there you will be also. This place will be where Jesus is. It will be the gloriously restored earth that we will enjoy fully and finally in the light and love of her true and rightful king. I said last week that I love Thomas for a whole lot of reasons, not the least of which is his brutal honesty and his willingness to say the things that I want to say, but I don't know if I have the permission to say them. So Jesus says in verse 4 that the disciples know the way to where I am going, and Thomas, bless his heart, Pipes up and says, Lord, we do not know the way. The GPS, it's not there. It's not ways. It's redirecting me, traffic jam. I don't know how to get there. Jesus has the entire time been assuring them that their faith is not a self guided tour. You know, when you go to some museums or other places now, it's a self guided tour. They give you a headset and a map and ask you to go enjoy the sights and have a great time. But Jesus has said nothing like that about what we are doing. This, this thing that we're on, this life that we live, this new life that we have in Christ is not some sort of self-improvement project. This is not some sort of self guided tour. This is not some sort of guess as you go or paint by numbers thing. This is not anything less than faith in a person, Jesus. Not propositions, not ideas, not abstractions, but a person, Christ. We weren't handed a pamphlet and told good luck. We were given a person in God's Son and said, My life for yours. Jesus, it seems, is telling his disciples that they should hang on to his presence when he is here. And when he goes, His word and his hang on to his word and his spirit. That will assure you that you're on the right way and that he is there with us. So if I take a, uh, if I take a, a very uh, interpretive translation of what Jesus is getting ready to say, where he says in verse six, he says, I, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If I were to take a step back and take a more transliterated uh, approach to this text, listen to how it renders. Um, it says, I, I am the way there. And I am the truth that will lead you on the way there. And I am the life that will give you the power to follow the truth along the way there. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Jesus isn't talking about uh, abstract things or disconnected concepts, he's talking about himself. In Christ, in his incarnation, his birth, his life, his teaching, his loving, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, all of these things show us the way to the truth of the living God. we're going to consider in just a moment, because of who Jesus really was, what he really did, that this assurance shows us that that he is the true way, the truth. And and, and again, in a little bit, that the spirit of the living Christ uh, that we celebrate today on Pentecost, who gave birth to the church, is the life of Christ, the power to believe the truth and walk in the way. Jesus Jesus goes and makes one of the most profoundly loaded and glorious and divisive truth claims about himself. Look at what he says. That the many rooms of the mansion of God, the the many places that we would dwell on the glorious real estate of the Father, these are not a co op or a timeshare with other religions or other philosophies, or other ideas. But it's that Jesus and Jesus alone is the exclusive way to the Father. We can know, we can deduce lots of things on our own. The Bible calls this general revelation. It calls it uh, general revelation. We see all around us, things that have no answer apart from a creator, from a sustainer, from a God. But general revelation will only take us so far. What do I mean by that? Even though the truth is all around us, and we suppress it, we can know the what about God, but we can't know the who. We can't know anything about the characteristics of God. We can know that there is a God, but we can't know anything about the characteristics of God. We only know the who of God, the Father who loves the whole world, that, we would, that he would send his only begotten son. We only know those things through Jesus himself. Now, this this puts us in a bit of a pickle. We are called to be the light of the world. You are the light of the world, as you heard Richard Pratt preach a few weeks ago. It means that you are going to have to interact in a winsome way, in a gracious way, in a compassionate way, in a kind way, but make no mistake about it, an uncompromising way with the world around you. Because we do not stand on what we think, but what Jesus has said. There is no compromise, there is no alternate route. We will persist in our loving engagement of the world and our neighbor. We will converse with our friends of different faiths and different beliefs. We will coexist, but not as the bumper sticker says. Because there's not some generic God that rules over the world that has access to some through a Buddha and an access to us, to another through ancient burial rites and an access through another still through a yet to come Messiah and an access and the list goes on and on. There is one God with one son whose name was Jesus and the way to that God is through the son. Now, that's an incredibly definite truth claim, isn't it? So don't be fooled by this passage. When Jesus said, my father has a, room, has a home with many rooms, it's a huge mansion, that's not to say that there's one door for the Hindus and one door for the, um, for the Tao Buddhists and one door for it's a huge mansion because it's a huge kingdom that's been bought and won by Jesus of every tribe, every tongue, every nation that will come and bow the knee to Jesus. Access to the Father is through nothing and no one except the nail-pierced, resurrected, and reigning Jesus of Nazareth. Out of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, in chapter two of The Silver Chair, tells this story of Jill, who's entered a strange and magical country at the top of a very high mountain. Um, After wandering some time in search of water to drink, Jill encounters a lion who's lying between her and a deliciously babbling stream. She's terrified of the lion, but she's also dreadfully thirsty. The lion asks her if she's thirsty, and she replies that she's dying of thirst, then drink, the lion tells her. She's too afraid to venture near the lion and asks if he would mind leaving while she drinks. She quickly realizes the presumption of this request. She might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. Meanwhile, the sounds of the running water are making her more and more thirsty. Jill asks the lion if he will promise not to do anything to her if she comes to the stream and drinks, but the lion responds that he makes no promises. Driven nearly frantic with thirst, Jill comes a step nearer without noticing it. Then she asks the lion if he ever eats girls. The lion responds matter-of-factly, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. When Jill tells the lion that she does not dare to come and drink, the lion replies that she will then die of thirst. Jill comes another step nearer and says, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. But the lion replies, there is no other stream. Friends, listen. You can struggle and wrestle. There is no other way to God outside of Jesus. And he bids you come and drink. But if you think that you can go like Jill and find another stream, you won't find it. It's not there. You'll die of thirst. Jesus goes on to show us how he is the personal truth of the Father. Look with me at verse 7. He says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. What a a claim this is. What a a mystery this is. And Philip is stunned. In verse 8, he says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough. In verse 9, Jesus doubles down and says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. It's possible that Jesus could have just as easily then today to us said these words Reader, the person who has read me has read the Father. Our deepest desire, whether we know it or not, is to know God. And Jesus is in fact saying, Welcome home. If you'll remember with me back in the opening words of John's gospel, we're very familiar. I'll sometimes preach this at uh, Christmas Eve. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And down a little bit further, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? That's one through, that's the bookends of one through 14. In John 1, 18, listen to what it says. John records for us these words, and he says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, has He has made Him known. Jesus came down and explained the who of who God is. Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in Him. And where does Jesus' authority come from? He says in verse 10, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. All these things are only possible because of the way that I am knit together in the Father and the Father is knit together in me. There is a bond unbreakable that miraculously you and all that will come after you will be invited to participate in. Do you know what it means when we say you have union with Christ? To say that you have union with Christ is that this bond that is unbreakable between the Father and the Son, you and I, by the Spirit, have been knit into. When we come and feast at the table, we're feasting on Jesus because we have union with Christ. When we say we are one body, we are one body because we are knit together by the Spirit because we have union in Christ. This is what Jesus is saying. This glorious place of God's eternal presence, it is here. It is in front of you. It is Christ. So verse 11, Jesus says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Believe in the works that you've seen. Water into wine. An evangelized Samaritan woman in John 4. An officer's son healed at a distance. A long sick man healed by a word. Multiplied loaves. Walking on water. A blind man from birth having his sight restored. Lazarus being raised. He says, if you don't believe me, look at all the things that you've seen. The Father and the Son are united and because we know Christ, we know the Father. This is, this is amazing. I sat in my office this week just stunned as I'm again contemplating the reality of some of these things that Jesus is saying to us. In a world that values nothing, that comes from anything other than self-discovery and self-realization comes the voice of Christ. You actually, in reality, can know nothing apart from through me. We can perceive a what, but we can have no knowledge of a who outside of Jesus. And what then is Jesus' gracious invitation to this world that can know nothing apart from him? Come to me, he says. Come and see me, behold me, listen to me, look at my hands, look at my feet, see my cross, see my love, see the Father, know the Father, know the Father through me, Jesus said. But if that, we're not mind-blowing enough. There is yet more. One of the things that Steve Jobs would do at Apple product events. And he'd save the best for last. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. So we need to talk for a minute about that. Greater works Greater things that are going to be done by his disciples than he himself. How do we explain this? How do we wrap our minds around this? Don't let this glaze past your ears. Listen to how impossible these things sound. How can any of us do greater works than Jesus? Who among us can wipe away the penalty of sin, satisfy the wrath of God, intercede before the throne of grace? Who among us can stare down the last great enemy in death itself and conquer it? I don't think any of us would raise our hand on that job. What does Jesus mean when he says that there are, that that my disciples, that those who come after me will do greater works than I? I think it has to be read this way, that Jesus must mean here the quantity of the work will be greater, not the quality of the work will be greater. Look, Jesus was largely geographically limited to a particular region, but Through those who would believe in his name, through the ones the Spirit was poured out on, nations, nations will come and believe. How does this happen? The people of God pray to the Son of God who makes their meager and minuscule words and works miraculous in scale. Can I say that again? The people of God pray to the Son of God who make their meagre and minuscule words and works miraculous in scale. Jesus goes on and repeats these same promises again, but, but what does it mean? Whatever you ask in my name, he says in verse 13, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So what does this mean? For instance, that I pray for a new car that is not uh, Texas hail damaged. Or sunny days, if I pray for these things, that God's just going to go ahead and give me those things because I prayed it in Jesus' name. Look with me more closely in verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, and here's the part you need to hear, this I will do in order that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So follow with me. Jesus wants us to be a praying people, not just to be praying for our big things, but also praying for our little things. He is actually bidding us to come no matter how insignificant the things may seem as long as they are prayed in his name. What does it mean to pray things in Jesus' name? That's not just... Formula, that's not just convention. To pray in Jesus' name is another way of saying it's to pray in line with his cause. It's to pray in line with his cause. And not just to pray in Jesus' name. If they are prayed so that the Father would be glorified in the Son. In other words, for the service of the gospel that you may believe. Jesus says he wants to do our whatever more than we do. Would that we would be awestruck by this miraculous promise and claim of Jesus. He, beloved, listen, he expects us to be a praying church. And not only that, but he expects his praying church to be both miraculous and missionary. Jesus is not calling us to be a name-it-and-claim-it prosperity gospel people, but he is also not calling us to be a frozen chosen. If God desire the people to be saved, he'll save them by himself. Instead, Jesus is inviting us to believe his believable miracles. Jesus wants us to be expectant prayers. He's telling us to try him. Try him and see what will happen. See what, you ha- what will happen when you pray in my name. And For those of you that have been praying these types of expectant prayers, Gospel-laden prayers for those who have not yet believed. Do not lose heart because as long as that person you are praying for still draws breath, there is time for the work of God in their life. Do not lose heart. Do not stop praying. Do not stop interceding for them. Because the character and the nature of God is good and loving and generous and the house is huge. There is a place where the people of God will be and Jesus goes to be our personal ambassador to RSVP our place and will himself be our transportation. He is the truest truth there will ever be. And he has poured out his spirit, the lifeblood of the church, which empowers expectant and exponential prayers that trust that miracles still happen. My friends, this should shake us become complacent. Where have we stopped praying expectantly in Jesus' name so that the Father would be glorified? Where have we, as Lewis would say in another place, become like children content to play in mud pies by the sea rather than eat the banquet spread before us? Or where have we been like Jill, refusing to come through the lion to the creek, and trying in vain to find another source of water that'll satisfy the thirst.